Thanks for listening to the Tex Hogs podcast. I am your host, Kyle Sutherland, and on this special edition, we're going to be talking with Coach Rick Venter. Coach is going to tell us about how he got his start at Henderson State University, a small school in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, playing and then later coaching under the legendary Sporty Carpenter. He also, along the way during his 40-year coaching career, has developed relationships with guys like Mike Tomlin, Pete Carroll, Monty Kiffin, John Harbaugh, Jimbo Fisher, among many others. Here is the story of Coach Rick Minner. Sporty Carpenter, the legendary coach at Henderson State University, it was there for many years. And uh, once your playing days were over, uh, you spent a year as a graduate assistant under him and then went to the University of Arkansas under Coach Lou Holtz. So let's start off talking about that and talk about your, your playing days, which you had some good ones there, and then go into what it was like coaching for Sporty after that. Yeah, Kyle, I was um, from Texarkana, Texas, and there were Henderson State graduates down there in that education system, and they were instrumental in guiding me over toward Henderson. I was a non-recruited player, ended up uh, getting a hold of Sporty Carpenter after my senior year, and Bill Lively actually was a Henderson State grad, and uh, I ended up in Henderson in the in the fall of 73 as a walk-on football player, one of about Oh, 115 or 20 plus guys because Sporty always played the numbers game. But I was a survivor. I went there, earned a scholarship, started the last game of my freshman year, became a three year starter, sophomore, junior, senior. And uh, I knew early on I wanted to be a grad assistant coach and go into coaching and wanted to do it right there at Henderson if all possible. So I approached Sporty, I think, when I was a sophomore even and said, hey, reserve a spot for me if possible, for me to be a graduate uh, uh, assistant coach my fifth year in college. And that's what I did. I ended up coaching the same guys I played with, and uh, that was a challenge within itself, but I separated myself quickly. But uh, it was a great thing, and then had a fortunate opportunity to join uh, Lou Holtz up at Arkansas, uh, going straight from Henderson over to Arkansas as another grad assistant position was the way to go as I was advised by the late uh, Dwight Adams of Clemson, which was a Henderson State grad. So going from Henderson State, one of the most successful Division II programs at that time, all the way up to Northwest Arkansas and Fayetteville, another very successful program at that time, fresh off the, the Coach Broyles days, and Coach Holtz took over and did some great things coming off a, a Orange Bowl win, arguably the biggest upset in bowl history uh, by some standards I've heard. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, you guys come into two th- or to 1978. You've got Ben Cowens, Ron Calcagney, Coach Holt at, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The, I mean, the, the expectations couldn't have been any higher. And didn't have a bad season. Uh, had a couple of slip-ups. But what was it like? to coach guys like Dan Hampton that was one of the top players in the country that year and and just as a young coach and being under a legendary guy like Lou Holtz? Well, not only if you look at the whole staff entirely, you know, it wasn't just Coach Holtz. Uh, coach was, you know, coach, back then I guess Coach was, what, probably 40 years old, something like that, right in the prime of his coaching career. But he had young studs coming along like Monty Kiffin, uh, Larry Bechtel, Don Bro, Bob Cope, John Mitchell. I mean, these are all guys, Harold Horton, Ken Turner. All these guys have gone on to achieve really, really good things in college football and into the NFL. So I learned a lot from Lou. I wrote down everything he said. Uh, Monty Kiffin was another mentor of mine. 
but we were around some really good players, certainly a team with high expectations on, you know, on defense, they had a heck of a team returning Jimmy Walker player of the year in the Southwest conference, Dan Hampton, the, probably the most improved guy on the roster from what they tell me from junior year to senior year, made all Southwest conference and became like the, I want to say about the fourth player taken in the draft by the bears of the following spring. So we were around some really good players. We had the disappointing losses on the road at Texas, at Houston, Houston newly into the Southwest Conference back in those days. And uh, it was a great learning experience because I was, like you said, a small college football player. I was uh, in the little pond and I certainly dove into the deep end of the big pond. And it was an eye-opening experience to be around great coaches, better players, and uh, met some friends that are still friends for, you know, to this day in my life. One of the coaches that was a mentor to you, Pete, everybody knows who Pete Carroll is. Super Bowl oh, yeah. winning coach, national championship winning coach, had a dynasty going at, at Southern Cal. Talk, so he was the graduate assistant the year before you were at Arkansas. Then he ended up taking a job at, at Iowa State. Yes. You guys ended up at North, after you had, had yep. spent a few years at Louisiana Tech. You were under Monty Kiffin. Now, Monty Kiffin was the head coach, and and uh, Pete was the defensive coordinator, correct? Yeah, and what was so strange, Kyle, when I got to Arkansas, I did replace Pete, by the way. He took off and went with Earl Bruce, got a job around March or so. I get interviewed around March or April. I come up in June. I sit around, and I'm talking to Bob Cope and Monty Kiffin, and this was what was eye-opening for me was I didn't know Pete Carroll, but I said to Monty, because the next, after the 78 season, of which we, again, underachieved a little bit, coaching job at that time, who would be your coordinator on defense should you get this job? And he says, oh, without question, it would be Pete Carroll. And that was such an eye-opening thing for me because I'm thinking, well, here's a guy that was just a GA the year before under Monty. And he would be willing to reach out and grab this guy and make him the defense coordinator. Told you a whole lot about Pete Carroll, uh, of what was to come, of course, in the rest of his life. But I did join Monty. And then, of course, uh, I got a job at La Tech, uh, Louisiana Tech, with Larry Bechtel, the offense coordinator with the Hogs. And that lasted a very, very short time. It was very unfortunate circumstances. That's a that's another whole story for another day. But uh, we ended up all going and staying one year, and then Beck went back to Arkansas, and I ended up getting on with Monty Kiffin a year later in December of 79 when he was named the head coach over at NC State, a place that Lou Holtz, of course, had made his reputation, obviously, uh, you know, some four or five years prior to that. So uh, Lou was still very, very popular in the Carolinas, and he helped get Monty that job, and then when he started to assemble his staff, sure enough, he reached out and grabbed Pete Carroll. Now, Pete at that time with Earl had gone from Iowa State one year. Then Earl got the job at Ohio State, and they went 11-0, and went to the Rose Bowl, and Pete Carroll was, of course, the secondary coach. But he gave that up, actually took a cut and pay, if you will, back in those days to come be the coordinator at NC State and the ACC under Monty Kiffin. So then we started putting the band together. It was me at outside linebackers, Greg Robinson at inside linebackers, uh, Pete Carroll, secondary, coaching on the back end, coordinating the defense, all off of Monty's playbook. And then a, John Stuckey, our weight coach at Arkansas, left that job to become the D-line coach, rest his soul now. But uh, it was a fun staff. It was a good staff, very young on defense, very highly energetic. 
And to this day, Pete Carroll has not changed much at all from the days I first met him when he was 28 years old, coordinating the defense. He's still just as young and vibrant today as he was back then. Yeah, he definitely uh, is not shy, uh, short on energy. I know he's he's around 70 years old or pushing it, and he's about the most energetic coach you'll see out oh, there. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so after your time at North Carolina State, you, know, you spent a year at New Mexico State, uh, then a couple, what about six, seven years at, at Ball State as a defensive coordinator. Then you got your, your big, big job at Notre Dame under Coach Holtz when you reunited yep. with him. So, so when I left, yeah, let me say when I left NC sure. State, I didn't get a job. Okay. So I set uh-huh. out one season, lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, and worked for Merrill Lynch in downtown uh, Commercial Bank Building. And that wasn't for me, let me tell you. I, you know, I enjoy my year off, so to speak, but uh, I did something. I, I got into something I didn't enjoy doing, which is a lesson for all. It's not about making money. It's not about the dollars. It's about where can you put your passion and your love into that you and your family are both happy. And I was miserable not coaching, but I got lucky and got back in at New Mexico State in the summer of 84 through the connections of Pete Carroll and the guys that we knew from Ohio State and from uh, NC State. Then I got up to Ball State with the Michigan connections through, again, NC State people and stayed there seven years. And I was really beginning to think, Kyle, that I was going to get stuck there. Uh, I kind of cut my teeth. I've become a young defensive coordinator at 30 years old. I was goal-driven now coming out of college. And, you know, you got around those great guys at Arkansas like I was with Kiffin and Bechtel and Holtz and all those guys. So you kind of drew your own little timeline. You said, hey, I want to be a head coach by the time I'm 35 or 37. Like these guys were becoming, I wanted to be a coordinator at 30. And sure enough, I was on track to be a coordinator at 30 years old at Ball State. And uh, we led the league in defense for about four out of seven years. So I was beginning to develop my own philosophy. In the meantime, Monty Kiffin after NC State, Pete Carroll after NC State, and UOP for one year all got in the NFL. So I'd go visit those guys, but I was developing my own college style of defense and I did it for seven seasons right under the doorstep of Lou Holtz, who was, you know, two and a half hours away up in South Bend. And every year for like five years, six years, Lou Holtz had an opening on his staff at Notre Dame and I'd drive up there because that was my recruiting area and he would turn me down cold. I mean, I was so frustrated and disappointed and it's kind of a lesson in perseverance and don't lose faith, et cetera. But he eventually reached back out to me after seven years at Ball State and said, not only I'm going to offer you a job at Notre Dame, which I only hope for, I'm going to offer you the coordinator job at Notre Dame. So once I got there in January of 92, then you got to screw it up, if you will, not to become a head coach. Because as long as you got Lou on your side and you're winning games at Notre Dame, you're going to be in a high-profile position enough to at least get your chance. And so we had uh, uh, two good seasons, not great, great seasons by Notre Dame standards because you lost a game, right? You're expected to win every ball game up there. And so we went, I think, 10-1, and 11-1 and the first year, uh, beat A&M or 10-1-1, something like that. Uh, the second year, uh, we had an undefeated season going, which was magical. Uh, with all our quarterback problems, and yet we got beat by Boston College on the heartbreak field goal with time running off the game. And and at that time then, I'm thinking, well, it's time for me to get out of here, and I wanted to be a head coach. And at that time then, 
And when we played the game of the century, as deemed at that time, uh, Notre Dame versus Florida State, Charlie Ward and the fellas, and beat them at home only to lose out on the national title. And uh, we lost both polls, the AP and the coaches. And it was very disappointing because we played A&M back-to-back years in Cotton Bowls. And uh, we had a great, great successful run there. We won 17 or 18 games at one point. But at Notre Dame, you did not win a title during that two-year span. But I got my opportunity then to become a head coach at Cincinnati, certainly with some of my own doing and then certainly with the backing of Lou Holtz. So when you get to Cincinnati, I want, I want to talk about it just for a second. So this is, as you mentioned, your first head coaching job. We've seen with the emergence of social media, with especially Twitter, I'd say here in the last six, seven years, we have this microwave society. You know, coach comes in and, and we saw it. We saw it yesterday with the Arkansas Razorbacks. I mean, I scroll through my Twitter feed and they just they didn't play a very good game against at least offensively against Portland State, a team that they should have just rolled. Was was is coaching even back at that time? This is what in the I guess mid nineties to early two thousands. Yeah, ninety four. Yeah, it, it's it's always been cutthroat, no doubt. But did you have that kind of pressure on you to the extent that you do today in a social media world where if no, you have not one at bad all. drive, and, it's and just not at Kyle, not at all at Cincinnati. Okay, they had one winning season in 13 years prior to my arrival. Uh, very, very few winning seasons scattered out through the history of the school. To be honest with you, it was a very urban setting, inner city type in school, uh, transient program. Guys like Mike Godfrey, Sid Gilman, all those kind of guys would come and pass through there. And it was never a destination job. It was a passing through job. And so when I got there, obviously the expectations were not overly high. It was my job to not only try to win games, put together a sound program based on Lou Holtz principles and background of philosophies. It was to try to establish some consistency and continuity. As it turned out, I stayed 10 years, probably stayed too long by, by today's standards, because you begin to get measured by the level of success that you're achieving. And uh, we finally got that thing going. Uh, we started off slow with a two or three win season, my inaugural season. And then we had three straight winning seasons, something that they had never done there probably in 40 years. We broke the uh, bowl drought. Uh, we went to the first ever humanitarian bowl out in Boise, Idaho. Uh, in 97, took a good team out there and beat a Utah State team. So we raised the bar. Then all of a sudden it fell off again. 98, 99, it dropped off. Then we rebuilt it. Then, So if you look at the last four years I was on the job at Cincinnati, 2007 wins, 2001, seven wins, 2000, and, and a bowl game, bowl game each year. And then 2002, we were co-champs in the Conference USA. And then, and then in that fourth year, that 10th year of my time there we slipped to five and seven when we gave up a post route to louisville and uh so that's when they got rid of me and and you know if you go back and look at it we're all mature about it i was bitter and disappointed sad because cincinnati was then already invited to join the big east and making a huge financial investment into facilities i'm talking two three hundred million dollars worth which we never saw of course and it was really the fact that two things. I was measured by seven wins and the athletic director said, let's try to find someone who might take it higher. And secondly, we're going into a new league. So there's a, there's, here's the timing to change faces of the program. And they did that. And you can't say they made the bad choice, you know, looking back at it very honestly, because of the heights that the program has now achieved 
in those last 15, 16 years. Yeah, they. I mean, that's kind of something that you that you started building with. Then Butch oh, yeah. Jones. Uh, I know Butch Jones did it, and then of course Luke Fickle uh, had a really big win the other night, and he's done really well in oh, his couple of years well. there. The, uh, so, the yeah. guy that the guy that put it on the map. Now, see, Mark D'Antonio of Michigan State followed me, and Mark is exactly a blueprint of Luke Fickle. Anybody that knows Luke Fickle today. Go back 15 years ago, and that's Mark D'Antonio at a younger age. I mean, defensive-minded, toughness, the Ohio State way, the Midwest way, et cetera. And uh, so they hired kind of a clone of me, to be honest with you, being a hardcore defensive guy. And he got the job done, winning, you know, about 500, but he won the key game that got him the Michigan State job three years. The next guy came in and really, really reaped the benefits, and that was Brian Kelly, now of Notre Dame. And BK did a good job of getting me back involved in the program. I set out of coaching, and we'll get to that in a second, but I set out in 07 and moved back to Cincinnati, where it's kind of been a second home for me, even since I was fired. And he got me back involved. I mean, you know, let all bygones be bygones and get back involved. And even today, my heart and passion is with Cincinnati Bearcats. You know, I'm, I'm a Luke Fickle fan. I'm a friend of his. And I'm pulling for those guys to do extremely well. So, yeah, we invested hard for 10. Brian Kelly took that thing to great heights because by then they had a new building. By then they were in the Big East and they won that thing. I want to say like four out of five or five out of six years they were associated with the Big East. The Bearcats won that league. And we never knew if, you know, truth be known, the guy that the, that the AD thought he was going to get, and talk about a twist, uh, particularly for you, you're, you're in Texas right now, right? That's correct. San Antonio. Yeah. All right. So a twist would be, uh, I was fortunate to have great coaches, you know, on my staffs at, at uh, Cincinnati. I had John Harbaugh. I had Mike Tomlin. I had Rex Ryan in 99. I reached out and hired a little bit of a risky hire at that time, a 33 year old offensive quarterback coach from Auburn by the name of Jimbo Fisher. Okay. And I reached out and hired him when no one else would, particularly as a coordinator. And he came in and, and really helped our offense, but yet we only won three games that year. But then he went on down to LSU the year after with Nick Saban because we had put 500 yards on Ohio State that year, and Nick was at Michigan State. Nick tells me this story when he makes his call to me to get permission to talk to Jimbo. And he says, listen, I saw your game against uh, – he's calling me in December. And he says, I saw your game against Michigan State or, or against the Ohio State while we were preparing. And I made a note to myself, whoever runs the offense at Cincinnati, I want to visit with someday if I ever need a guy. So he wrote down Jimbo Fisher's name. And then, lo and behold, when he takes the LSU job and nobody from Michigan State wanted to join him in Baton Rouge – he started from scratch building a staff and that's how he got Jimbo Fisher hooked up with him was making that call to me to told me the story and say, now I want to talk to him about being my coordinator. And that's how all that happened. But that was in 99. But, uh, so the point being of this, the guy that the AD thought he would get to come replace me for the Oh four season was Jimbo Fisher at LSU. And Jimbo, in the very last minute, turned him down to stay at LSU. Okay. And then a later, of course, he went to you know, to Florida State, became the head coach in waiting, became the head coach. Now he's at A&M. 
and he'll do well at A&M. So, you know, you never know about decisions. And Jimbo made one to pass on the Cincinnati job, and it worked out for him. And uh, But I was blessed to have great coaches around me all the time. But Brian Kelly took that job at Cincinnati and got it up to 12-0 and 0 and was one, what, uh, Texas, Nebraska play way back in the day of the Big, the Big 12. If, if that clock runs out on the Longhorns, remember, instead of kicking that field goal to win that game, the Cincinnati Bearcats are going to play in the national title game against uh, Alabama or SC or one of those schools. And as it turned out, then Texas played, you know, in that game. But that's how close it came because they went 12-0 and in BK's last year. And then in December of 2009, uh, Brian accepted the Notre Dame job. Huh. I did not. I, I didn't even remember that. I, I as you're telling me, I I recall that game with, with with Texas. I knew that Cincinnati had had a couple of undefeated seasons, and I I want to say that they played Florida in the. They Sugar ended up Bowl going to the Sugar Bowl that against year. Tim Tebow and all those guys. Yeah, because Brian had already taken off, and of course the fans at Cincinnati booed him for leaving. I remember I was at Marshall again. As we get back to me. But as I was at Marshall, Brian and I were still talking occasionally because we'd become really good friends. And he calls me up and says, listen, I got a chance to go visit Notre Dame on Wednesday, and I think I can get the job. What do you think? Because we had talked in over the previous two years about him having job opportunities and which one he should take or consider, et cetera, et cetera. He was a hot guy. And I just said, Brian, there is no decision here, brother. You've got to go to Notre Dame. And I said, look, you've just taken the Bearcats as high as they can go to 12 wins, and you're not even playing for the national title. So you're going from a regional school to the most highly spotlighted national program in the whole country, if not the whole world. And you're the right man for the job. I had been there twice by that time. I had served under Lou. I went back in 0506 and served under Charlie Weiss. I knew the kind of head coach that can be successful at Notre Dame and the personality type that it takes to be successful there. And I knew Brian Kelly was that guy and he's there currently and he is being successful. Another guy that you had on your staff, I wanted to go back to is Rex Ryan. Now, oh, one yeah. of the, one of the biggest characters in coaching, what was it like having, I mean, I can imagine the, uh, the coaches meetings were quite comical, but what was it like having a guy like him on? And he was pretty fairly young at that time. I guess, well, in his maybe in his thirties, uh, yeah. but I guess oh, before yeah. he had had taken all the trips to the NFL. Yeah. See, now, he and Rob, Rob Ryan's his twin brother, and I did not know there was twin Ryan's, okay? So when I had a coordinator job open going into the 96 season there at Cincinnati, uh, back in those days, you didn't have the uh, iPhones, you didn't have the text messages like we do today, the email, the constant messenger. So everybody had to get jobs by doing it the old-fashioned way, right? Place a phone call. Your secretary takes messages just on the old pink slips there. And so one day I'd gone to lunch or worked out or something to come back. And sure enough, here's a stack. Because every time you're the program with jobs opening, you get a stack of these messages every day, right? That's just how guys reached you. And so I'm flipping through this stack of uh, messages. And it says, Rex Ryan, uh, here's the phone number, uh, Arizona Cardinals, son of Buddy Ryan. And I keep flipping. I put that off to the side because I was always a Buddy Ryan fan back in the 80s and 90s, you know. And uh, 
So I kept flipping these messages, and sure enough, I saw another message, and it was Rob Ryan, Arizona number, Arizona Cardinals, son of Buddy Ryan. Even so confused that I took these two messages over to my secretary to make sure she didn't misunderstand the phone calls, you know, like it could have been the same person. And I, she said, no, there's two, there's two different guys there. I said, okay. So I sat there and really went something like any, mini, money, mo, right? Cause I wanted to call one of these Ryan guys cause I still did not know anything about it being twins. So I picked, I picked Rex for some reason. I don't know why I just picked Rex and I get Rex on the phone and I had to tell him the story that we just shared. And he says, Oh, by the way, coach, if Rob is already in on this job, then he and I have a pack that says we're not going to go after the same jobs and we're not going to chase the same opportunities because they had been with their father with the Arizona Cardinals out there for the three seasons and they all got let go. And uh, I said, no, you're the first one I picked up the phone to call. He says, well, then screw Rob, then I'll talk to you. <laughs> so it was a funny reaction how that all came about. Then you had to learn who Rex was and the Ryans have such, you know, the acorn didn't fall too far from the tree. Their buddy Ryan and a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of confidence and swagger. And Rex just has a absolute more pleasing personality to him, you know, a real prankster and a jokester uh, and that type of thing. But uh, the very first day of spring practice, we get the defense, put it together. It's very aggressive. The very first day of what we call a nine on seven or an inside run drill. And typically you have your safeties there just to, kind of get the run fit okay you're you're outnumbering the offense because it's an inside run structure but you want your safeties there to get run support the first play of inside drill in the spring of 96 i guess he brings a safety blitz right up the a gap and kills the tailback in the backfield and i i motioned for rex i said hey rex come come, come here come here come here, come here. i said what are you doing I said, this is inside run drill. Oh, oh, coach, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just thought we wanted to set the tone right. <laughs> but that was Rex, right? And that was the buddy run arrogance and and being a little bit of a smart aleck. But we did play great defense in 96 and 97. He's very responsible for us having those two consecutive winning seasons there and getting into that bowl game. But he was a character. and And now full circle. You know, I had a guy named Don Martindale on my staff at that on, on that same staff was John Harbaugh, was Don Martindale and was Rex Ryan. Well, I'm sitting in Baltimore today as we talk. John Harbaugh's the head coach right here with the Ravens, right? He's hired my son, Jesse, a 36 year old defensive back coach. Don Martindale is the defensive coordinator with the Ravens. See, so it all keeps going in circles, you know. So the coach, the coaching world is a, it's a oh, funny, it's crazy how the, as we, we mentioned when we were talking the other day, just, you know, like how it's just a big family and oh absolutely it's a big fraternity and more jobs than are not are hired by people that, you know, or trust other people's strong opinions of. And if you look at this Raven staff here, John's the head coach, Wink Martin, they call him Wink Martindale. It's Don Martindale, but he goes by Wink. Wink Martindale is the coordinator, coach for me, John coach for me, Chris Hewitt, the secondary coach, now 45 years old here, played for me at Cincinnati. And my son Jesse's on that staff. So you're talking about it really being family. And they love him to death up here. My son, 
and uh, John created this job for him two and a half years ago. Now it's worked out to where Jesse's on his own two feet now. And, and uh, I mean, it's really worked out well. But Rex and I have always maintained, and Rex used to be the defensive coordinator here, you know, years for years at Baltimore. And I would come over here and visit him uh, when he was the D coordinator. And that here. was right before he went to the Jets. He took the yes, Jets job yes. from the, okay. okay. And Rex and I almost hooked up two or three different stops. I always wanted to get in the NFL. And uh, something always prevented it. Uh, even almost got hired over here at Baltimore on, on John's first staff, and it just didn't quite work out. And then up to Rex's staff, and it just didn't work out. And uh, then finally, when I get hired by the Eagles in 2013, Rex offered me a job at the exact same time. You know, so sometimes you don't have any jobs, and sometimes you have two or three. You know. Sure. Well, we're going to take a quick break real quick. Uh, it's a great conversation. Love hearing all these stories. Uh, we're going to uh, hop off just for a second, and we'll be right back with Coach Menner. You are listening to Tex Hogs. Back to Coach Rick Minner. Uh, if you have not heard uh, the stuff before, the stuff that he was talking about before, uh, definitely give that a listen. Incredible stories. You'll hear a lot of familiar names. We were just talking about his stint at Cincinnati with some of the coaches that he had had that had gone on to win Super Bowls and just be very successful in general. And Coach, after your Cincinnati stint, you joined back up with Coach Lou Holtz for the third time after being on a GA forum at the U of A, and then of course uh, Notre Dame, and then when he gets hired on at South Carolina. So. What is just talk about more about your your one season there before you went back to Notre Dame and just yep. I mean really how Coach Holtz has just has been such a mentor to you throughout all these years. It, you know, Lou, it's not like Lou and I stay in touch all the time right now, and I do want to make a point while I'm still living in Florida to, to go by and see him before it gets too late. But when the day I get fired at Cincinnati, right around December the first or so thereabouts, the first guy to call me was Lou Holtz. And it really was a call of uh, consoling a little bit and making you understand the reality of this cold world we live in in college coaching that said, just because you got fired doesn't mean you're still not a great coach and a good person. And, you know, try to bring you back to earth a little bit because otherwise you'll waller in self-pity for, you know, a little while. And then he also planted the seed that he may have changes at South Carolina and would love for me to entertain that chance to come back and join him for a third time. And so after contemplating it and settling my contract and taking four or five weeks to collect myself there after Cincinnati, 10 years, I did join Lou in, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. I was excited to be in the SEC and uh, to be back with Coach again. And I signed a two-year deal. I thought he was going to go for another four or five years. And lo and behold, he retires even before the end of that one year. And uh, – uh, I would love to have been in line for that job. Mike McGee told me had Steve Spurrier not been available to replace us suddenly that I might have been given consideration based on what I had done in the past. But uh, as it turns out, I get the opportunity to go back and uh, to Notre Dame. Charlie Weiss then was a hot NFL uh, you know, coordinator with the Patriots. They were en route to winning a Super Bowl that same year. And so I had to, the, the fortunes of joining Charlie there 
with a staff that was really a unique staff that he put together over the telephone, I might add, because he was still running the Patriot offense all the way up to February the 1st. He almost was a head coach at Notre Dame for about two months over the telephone because of his co-duties by wanting to run the gamut up there in New England. But, you know, a lot of people forget that on our first staff at uh, Notre Dame there, David Cutcliffe was going to be our offense coordinator. And then Cut had heart condition problems about two months into his stay there and had to return home to Oxford, had surgery, pulled himself out at Notre Dame just due to health reasons. And then he surfaced again, uh, a new guy, weight loss, hair dyed, made himself look younger, went back to Tennessee for another year or two to be the OC, which was a job he once held, you know, when he coached Peyton Manning there. And then he gets the Duke head coaching job and has done an outstanding job at Duke for what, 10 or 12 years now. So life went on at Notre Dame. We hired Peter Voss, a guy that had been at Notre Dame already before, but we had a two year run with Charlie and we won 19 games. We got into two BCS bowl games. We lost both bowl games. Uh, it was very disappointing because, you know, Charlie had never been in college football. Everything was in the NFL and uh, wasn't a whole lot of experience in developing players outside of what you already had. And once we lost that Sugar Bowl in year two, he decided to make a change. And that's what got me suddenly out at Notre Dame, uh, you know, really to my chagrin because we really played good defense. But my son, Jesse, had already been hired as a young coach, and I was there as a two-year coordinator, and he decided to make some changes, and uh, and then I had to move on. So that's when I moved back to Cincinnati and set out the one season in 07. But uh, during that time at, at Notre Dame, we had the, the rivalry between us and SC, as you were talking about, and I was just reminded of it. Yesterday, I was watching games here in Baltimore on television all day long like everybody else. And I'm watching the Fox channel and I'm seeing Urban Meyer on the on the uh, podium there or, or, you know, at the desk. And I'm sitting there watching Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush and Brady Quinn. And it is a reflection of just exactly what you talked about, because the two years I was at Notre Dame, Brady Quinn was our quarterback. And the two years I was at Notre Dame, Matt Leiner and Reggie Bush were players at at SC and uh we had that epic game over there in South Bend the first year I was uh, back in 05. And they were really, really unbelievable. And here again, I'm going head to head against Pete Carroll. And now really Lane Kiffin, right? Monty Kiffin's young son. And uh, so they were all together out at, out at SC. And, you know, we had them fourth down and eight or fourth, uh, fourth and 10 on about the minus 20. And they caught a pass to, um, I think Mike Williams or one of those big, tall receivers or get or Jarrett, one of them caught a pass, went about 70 yards down to about the 10 or 15 yard line. And after a few more tries and the clocks running, you know, the infamous play that in the ball game practically was the old Bush push. And it was illegal at that time, you know, in terms of aiding your own offensive players, but they got away with it because now it is legal to do that to where they don't call that anymore, which they didn't call that day either. But Liner tried to sneak it in and we had him stopped at the line with our front only to have Bush and the other guys in the backfield come and just 
you know, surge it forward and just barely broke the plane. And that became known, of course, as the Bush push. Very disheartening, very heartbreaking. Well, and as, as crushing as that loss was, you would think that it, uh, that would just take the wind out of a lot of teams. But you guys went on a five game win streak and then ended up making making the Fiesta Bowl, of course. Yeah, we uh, played the Fiesta Bowl and played a very, very talented uh, Ohio State team and had a chance into the fourth quarter, you know, to stay with them and, and uh, pull it out. But we just couldn't stop them. They were so loaded. That was the year the Buckeyes had nine senior starters on defense with A.J. Hawk and that whole group on offense. It was Mangold at center, and and uh, I forget the quarterback, the real athletic quarterback. but uh, Troy Smith, you know, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Troy Smith was quarterback, and they had great receivers. And, I mean, it was a really, really talented football team that they had there. But it was an exciting game, and – you know what coach Weiss really, I, I didn't think understood was the two years we were there with the talent level that we had had and uh, inherited. I thought we overachieved, whereas his confidence level coming from the NFL felt we underachieved. And I thought we did more with what we had than did less with what we had. We won 19 ball games. We had very little depth and uh, I thought we did some really good things. Yeah. We lost a couple of games, but, if you look at who we lost to, we lost to SC twice. We lost to Ohio State. We lost to LSU. You know, those are big-time, talented programs and teams. And I know Notre Dame's supposed to be in that same conversation, but we really weren't at that time. And and they've struggled since, you know, to try to maintain that marquee level of talent. So after your second stint at Notre Dame, you were hired on by Marshall. At, at You said you took yep. a year off and then went to Marshall and was the defensive coordinator. Yep. And was it uh, was it Snyder that that resigned? Mark Snyder. Mark Snyder resigned. I, I sort of remember that. I remember you guys yep. in the Little Caesar. I watched that game in the Little Caesars Bowl when yep. I was in college. Was your plan since they made you the interim head coach? You guys won the bowl game, and was your plan to stay there? Had they that would have been their decision? Well, I would have loved to have been. I was trying to put myself in position to audition for the head job. Mike Hamrick had been appointed the AD in September and Mike and I were friends all the way back to his days at East Carolina and mine at Cincinnati. But I didn't realize uh, was that he was probably already in connection with Doc Holliday, who he had a past with, too. But uh, and Doc has done a tremendous job at Marshall. So they named Doc Holliday the head coach about a week before the bowl game just to make sure they didn't let the verdict of the bowl game determine who should, you know, who the coach should be. Because the players really were rallying around me uh, to be the head coach. But as it turned out, we go up there, we win, we beat Ohio University, we play great on defense, low scoring, hard fought game. Uh, we brought the trophy home. We, we bust home after the game. We got back around Huntington around one o'clock a.m. I take the trophy, go put it on the AD's desk, and that was the end of my duty there. As Doc decided later not to retain me as the defense coordinator, and which I would have done. I would have been happy to stay there and serve him. But he wanted to go another direction. I understood that because I went after the job. And uh, then that allowed me for the first time uh, to work with Jesse again as I took a job for the, for the one season, 2010, uh, over at Indiana State, working uh, under Trent Miles as the head coach. Now, Trent, I had hired at Cincinnati, so here's another one of my guys helping me out, as well as my son. So I went over there and helped those guys, coordinated the defense, You know, took some young coaches like Jesse under my wing, and 
had a wonderful time family-wise because I lived with my son and his wife, Rachel, and had a wonderful time doing that. And uh, unfortunately, after that, I was able to get hired at Kentucky under Joker Phillips, who another was, one again, of your players. Another, another one, one of, of my coaches. coaches. Yeah. Yep. Joker had been a longtime Kentucky player and coach. He got fired with uh, Bill Curry after the 96 season. I hired Joker in 97, 98. Then he moves on, goes to Minnesota, goes to Notre Dame, goes to South Carolina. He worked for Lou a time or two. And then um, he went full circle back to UK under Rich Brooks. And then he replaced Rich Brooks as the head coach in waiting, took over the job. And then uh, I came in on his second year and he only got three seasons. Very unfortunate for him. But uh, we go to Kentucky and stay two years. We beat Tennessee one of those years to break that uh, 26 or 27 game drought. Uh, we played some really good ball. We almost beat Georgia that one time, which would have been a big win for us. And uh, had a lot of fun. Uh, Lexington is a wonderful area. It's a it's a nice you know southern town. Even though it's up the northernmost part of the SEC, it's still a very southern school. And uh, with all the horse racing and the and uh, the bluegrass, it's a, it was a great experience. It was a fun time. It was really a good, fun job, even though we did uh, weren't as successful as they are right now that Mark Stoops has followed us by doing another great job. But it was also then that by that time, the Indiana State fellas, Trent Miles, Jesse and I like, they got the Georgia State job in December of 12 going into 13. But as it turns out, I get hired by Chip Kelly with the Eagles in January of 13, when he took that, uh, when he took that job, uh, after Oregon had had the four years with him, uh, outstanding record at the, one of the guys he talked about being in the same family. One of the guys that was on my staff at Marshall in 2008 was a guy named Jerry as All right. So as, as we call him, uh, was my connection. So when, when Chip got the job at the Eagles, as was kind of his right-hand guy to help put the defensive side of the ball together. And there I am in Philadelphia for three years. And uh, so, again, it's always who you know. You know, I didn't really know Chip all that well. And um, we stayed three years. We did a heck of a job with the Eagles. It really wasn't our one-loss record that got Chip out of there because we won 10, we won 10, and we won seven. That's not enough to fire an NFL coach on on its record alone. There were just other things that had run its course, and uh, the players and the ownership thought that they needed to make a change. And the same thing you could say, looking back on the Cincinnati job, right? We're all disappointed, but what follows it? Well, what's followed firing Chip Kelly with the Eagles is they've since won a Super Bowl. So you can't say they made a you know mistake in making a change, you know. I think Doug Peterson's the better fit for that team right now. I love to have been there, certainly like to have stayed on, et cetera. But uh, upon being fired with the Eagles, Chip went out to the Niners, did not take very many of us with him. And then I took the opportunity to go to Atlanta and join that staff again, that same group that was at Indiana State. I joined them in Atlanta and with my son and and daughter-in-law about to have their first child. I took the opportunity to make a family decision. You know, I wanted to be down there when I became a grandpa and work with my son again. And this time, ironically, the the tables were turned. He was going to run the defense and be the coordinator, and I was going to work for him. And I got to tell you, at first, I'm thinking, oh, my God, can I do that? (laughs) This is my kid I'm working for. 
but uh, but it turned out to be great, both on the field and off. And I was blessed to be around little Millie for the first seven years of her life, you know, almost on a daily basis. Well, so what was it like since you spent those three years in the NFL? That was the only time I well, we'll get to yeah. the, the AAF here in a second. So yeah. besides that, that was besides the AAF, that was your only time at, at a professional level. What was different about it, Coach? You, you've heard other coaches say that it's, it can be much harder to manage grown men, so to speak, that are making millions of dollars. What was that like transferring from essentially kids to, to grown men, for lack of a better word? Well, for me, whether it was due to my age and experience or whatever, and I always thought those rumors were unfounded because I'd been around it enough visiting coaches. You might occasionally uh, – run into a prima donna, a personality or, or a program that kind of lets the inmates run the asylum, if you will. But for the most part, they're just young guys that are just now rich and wealthy, and they're a little bit older. Yeah, they're young men. I mean, they're men, certainly 22 to 30 years old, certainly full-grown men. But they want to win, and they want to be taught. And so the coaches that last the longest in the NFL are the coaches that Get along with the players, not not about giving it, you know, letting them have their way so much, but knowing that the NFL is a star driven league. It's a player driven league, not a coaches driven league. And so you got to let them have their moments in the sun and in the spotlight. You can't get hung up on that like you might have in college. But as long as you as a coach can teach them something and help them improve. Oh, you're you're endeared forever. I mean, you'll have a job as long as you can help a player see himself getting better uh, or improving because that's money in his pocket. That's his chance to win. That's his chance to extend his career. Uh, so this, I, I never, we, and the whole three years I was with the Eagles, I mean, only a guy or two ever tried to be bigger than the program. Well, I'm not going to work real, real hard. Even in our OTAs, we had close to 95 to 100% attendance all the time. And that's very rare in the NFL. Not everybody would be that way, and you shouldn't get upset about it because it's voluntary activities. But we had great participation. We had great team camaraderie. Uh, at least I felt so, and yet it really was the players who got to the owner who ended up helping uh, move along Chip. And it was just because of some of his philosophies and ways they may or may not have begun to agree with Um uh, and it just wasn't a good fit for them anymore. But it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, I, you know, I get tired of hearing people talk about it, about, you know, the, you know, what, what you read about on the Internet and, and Twitters many times are the bad cases. The, the, the one to two percent, just like society, you, you hear about the guys who get into trouble, beat their wives, have the abuses. Yeah, those, those are real issues. But you don't hear about the 95 percent who are running charities, who are giving to their uh, local, you know, boys clubs, girls clubs, uh, doing community service all the time. I mean, you don't hear enough about guys like Connor Barwin, you know, who holds still to this day benefit concert in Philly for inner city basketball courts to be built, you know, things like that, you know. So there's a lot of great things going in the NFL. Unfortunately, it's it's the exposure to all the warts. They give it a, at times a bad name when your Ray Rice's come along and do those kind of things. And and uh, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. I loved to have gotten in the NFL when I got fired at Cincinnati. I'd be 50 years old. Uh, but yet that call from Lou Holtz mattered. And I had to go answer that call. 
and it prolonged me getting into the NFL, as it turned out, by 10 years. But I was so grateful for the opportunity to be in it at least the three years. And I'm still around it now, you know, right here in Baltimore with my son. I was on the sideline of the game last Thursday night up in Philly when Ravens played the Eagles. I'm on the sideline with John in the sideline pass, and I'm able to go across and, and talk to all the coaches that I once worked with with the Eagles. So just, you know, you're still connected and you're st- it's still fun, but it's uh, it's a great league to be a part of. So after your stint with the Eagles, you, as you mentioned, you, you spent a year at Georgia State coaching defense with your son. Yeah. And then after that, I uh, went to Florida Tech for two years. Yeah. Then you received a call uh, from Tim Lewis was his name. Yes. Uh, from the, yeah, from the Birmingham Iron. Uh, you received a call from him uh, about this new league that they're going to be opening up the, called the Alliance of American Football. So kind of talk about that process. Okay. You know, first of all, he offered his coordinator job to two or three different people, like happens a lot of times. So you're not always the first choice. But again, knowing who you know, the general manager of the Birmingham Iron was Trey Brown. Trey was a regional scout for us with the Eagles. So the moment they got turned down by that second or third guy to run the defense, Trey goes to Tim and said, hey, what about Rick Minner? He's on, you know, he's down coaching D2 football and he would be available. I've been around him. He's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I get a call from Tim Lewis. And Tim said, oh, yeah, I remember Rick. He interviewed me at Ball State when I just got out of the NFL and wanted to go into coaching way back in the mid-'80s. So, you know, it's, again, it's who you know. It's the, it's the paths you traveled. And, the, and Tim Lewis remembered our interview. And he says, I, I like Rick. I remember that, you know, 25 years ago. And so that got me there. And I took the job, but I told Tim I was going to finish up my time at Florida Tech, and we went 8-3 and three and got in the playoffs. December 1, I'm in Birmingham starting a brand-new job. And January 2, we're in San Antonio down there, as you well know, starting the month-long training camp of the eight teams. And then February the 1st or 2nd, we all head off to our individual cities, us to, to Birmingham and the old Iron Bowl, and, uh, and we were off and running. And I'll tell you this, Kyle, the league set up by Charlie Ebersol and Bill Polian was set up with all the right intentions. And it was run very, very well. If you looked at it from a player and a coaching standpoint, it was run excellent, almost too much so because that's what helped drain the coffers. I mean, they took care of every little want and need of the players. Uh, they provided housing. They provided transportation. They we're, you know, trying to build this little pot of gold at the end of the season to, to do revenue sharing with the players. It was all well intended. What happened was it just did not bring enough money to the table to make all that, you know, to make all that happen. And then uh, Charlie had to partner with a guy named Tom Dunham over in North Carolina who runs a hockey program over there. And it just turned out to be a ma- you know, bad marriage, to be honest with you. I know that I, I can speak for just about everybody in San Antonio that we can, this, this city bought in more so than I think maybe any other city did. I was there for the the first game on February 9th and yeah. it was just, I mean, it, it was packed. The dome was lit. I mean, it wasn't sold out or anything, but oh, yeah. to have 30,000 people at a, at a semi-pro football game, I think that people were very excited to, to have this just for the spring, especially right after the Super Bowl. Yeah, if you take the purpose of the league, it's a it's a developmental league. And for the football junkie like yourself, 
as soon as the football or as soon as the Super Bowl's over, you're always saying, what's next? You know, do I get the dry heaves and got to wait till August or do I get another sedative? And this league was going to provide that sedative for people just to keep watching, keep following. And it was doing just that. The TV ratings were pretty good. What happened was the NFL Network was lent to us, uh, TNT, uh, CBS, some of the other little affiliates. And we didn't make a lot of money off of that, but at least it gave it the avenue to be put on television for the product to be seen. And the viewership and the product, one, the product looked good. It was well coached. It was well thought out. Offense, defense, kicking game, pretty good level of player. And and then the viewership was pretty good. From what I hear, the ratings were were pretty good for what it was. It was it was triple A football at its best being played in the spring, not to compete with the NFL. That's the purpose of it. And as far as all that goes, all its goals were met and passed. It's just that you have to have deep pockets to run a league where you're not getting a whole lot of revenue streams and sources from anything outside like television. I mean, what drives the NFL today is television money. That's simply what it is. That did not drive the AAF. It had to be independently raised and someone else's money. And while Charlie brought a little bit of money, he counted on a a second investor to start with, which kind of faltered and fell through. And then he partnered with a guy. I'm not saying Tom was the problem, but Tom didn't have the same vision for this league that Charlie and Bill had. And he thought it should be something a little bit different. He wanted the NFL to share their players with us or it wouldn't be called a developmental league, which is not true. I mean, that was his attitude, but that to me is not true. That's not the original purpose of the league. And so he took his money and his toys and went home and really shut the league down after eight weeks. And it was such an abrupt ending to something that was so very good to begin with and so classy to begin with for it to end so classless. It really did end very unclass-like by just cutting everybody off salary-wise after one day after the shutdown, not taking care of the players' transportations back home, shutting off our family insurance plans, you know, 10 days or so, and no COBRA opportunities. So there was a lot of negatives toward the ending. Doesn't take away from the product I enjoyed the heck out of it. I'd make that same decision again if given the opportunity. And what the fans need to understand is that the XFL now coming along with Vince McMahon's money, number one, it'll make it because Vince has deeper pockets. He's just got more money than what Charlie and the boys had. But the product should look very similar. It'll be well coached. It'll be uh, you know, well demonstrated on the field, the player selection process will fall. It'll really be a rinse repeat of the AAF. They'll, they'll follow exactly the same schedule. Now they chose larger cities to go into. So maybe they'll have a kind of a developed fan base. We'll kind of wait to see how that argument goes, right? Where you take the existing NFL fan and college fan and try to make him become the XFL fan, rather than we took on marketplaces like San Antonio, like, Birmingham, you know, they didn't have a pro market necessarily and tried to make it a pro market. And it was well on its way, particularly right there in San Antonio. So at this point, as we speak, you, you're taking uh, some time out of, off of coaching. Uh, you're visiting family right now as we record right. this, but you've got 40 years of coaching under your belt. Do you plan on getting back into it? If the, oh, if the I'd position love to is coach. right. Uh, I'd love to coach again or do something. Uh, 
connected to the sport. Uh, and I was up in Cincinnati over the last few weeks trying to uh, even offer my services there to the athletic director and the, and, the, and the head coaches up there to say, what can I do to help this program uh, in any way? And if not that, then I still want to either be on the field or be willing to take an analytical position, a consulting position. My, I'm young enough. I have passion. I have know-how. Um, you know, anything to stay involved. I'm a single guy currently. This is what I do. It's what I've always done. I will cherish these next few months to visit my kids. I have two boys, one in Baltimore, one in New York. I have a mom still alive, 85 in Texarkana, Texas. Uh, so I've got family at different places that I'll take advantage of the time to be able to go see and visit. But make no mistake, I'm not ready to hang it up or retire. And, uh, you know, whatever I can offer somebody or a program. And then if the next cycle passes me by, then I'm going to have to be, get more creative, you know, as to ways to exude my passion on something connected to the sport. Well, Coach, it's, it's been an honor. Uh, I've loved talking to you, hearing your stories. Really appreciate your time and, and sharing what you shared. I mean, it's to, to football junkies like myself and anybody else. It's, uh, it's always great to hear, hear not just how the, the coaching fraternity has, comes full circle so many different times, but, but just hearing the, the stories throughout your years in general. It's, it's been a great time. Well, we're all just gym rats, you know, playing football, and, but I appreciate it. And uh, anytime you want to talk, I'm more than willing to do it. Sure thing. Well, again, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. For Coach Rick Minner, my name is Kyle Sutherland. You've been listening to Tech Talks.